Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of my podcast, American Feminism Takes Root and the Fabulous Grimke Sisters. Today, what we're going to actually start doing is looking at the development of American feminism chronologically. So the last several episodes have given you important background in which these women are functioning. And I do that so you have a better understanding when we actually get to the historical events and the historical chronology. And the feminism that develops in the 19th century is in many ways uniquely American because much of it is rooted in our founding documents, in the Declaration of Independence, in the Constitution, in the first 10 amendments, and then later in the century on the 14th amendment. Those are really important parts of the specific arguments that American feminists are going to make. Now, I'd like to take a moment to do something I often do in my classes. And if you're in a room and you have a whiteboard or a piece of paper or your computer, I know it sounds a little hokey, but I I love timelines and I find they're very helpful. So I draw a big, huge line across two whiteboards with an arrow at each end so I can follow the chronological development of American feminism alongside the more well-known events of the period. And so you can see how things play off each other. More importantly, you can also see the evolution of American feminism and that each phase builds on the other until we get to the present day. Because so many of the arguments that the American feminists made in the 19th century are still relevant today and in fact fed into the second wave of feminism in the 60s and certainly into feminism today. Okay, so take a minute and go ahead and make yourself a long line. And in the very left-hand side, put 1776. Most Americans know that year, and that is the year that the Declaration of Independence was adopted. And in the preamble to the Declaration, there are very clearly established rights based on natural law. Now, the second half of the Declaration I don't focus on too much because it's mostly a list of grievances. But the preamble contains an ideology, and that ideology comes out of that movement called the Enlightenment. And I talked about that when I did the episode on America's founding. What's so important about the Enlightenment, it's a movement, an intellectual movement in Western culture in the 18th century that builds on the scientific revolution of the previous era. Now, the scientific revolution predates the Enlightenment and is also coexistent with it. But what the scientific revolution did in the 17th century was make it clear that man was capable of understanding nature and in the case, in this case, the heavens, the stars and the planets through the use of reason. So by applying reason and using the brain that in their case, they would have said God gave them, they are able to understand the world around them more fully. And then the group of thinkers in the Enlightenment, which we call the philosophes, 
took that idea and applied it to social and cultural institutions, most specifically government. So it's in the 18th century that we start to see arguments against not just superstition, but the reliance on the idea that somehow government comes from God and that God has designated a specific person as a monarch. And we see throughout the century a shift with the development of this idea of nature and the state of nature, that when human beings are in their natural state, they inherently have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that when a government is formed in order to impose order, that government has an obligation to rule in the interests of the governed. Why? Because we are the possessors of our own political sovereignty, and we surrender that on a contractual basis <clears throat> to the government to rule in our interests. But those rights are very important, and the idea that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the 18th century only applied to uh, white, property-holding, heterosexual men is clearly what some of the founders thought, but you cannot have that kind of ideology developing and writing and arguing and places where people would gather and talk about these issues. You can't have that and then just only narrowly apply it to a small minority of people. So women are going to start from the very beginning of America and concomitantly in the French Revolution as well, to say, wait a second, we are citizens now. And after the Constitution of 1789, which made it clear that America is a constitutional republic, and of course women's important involvement in the revolution itself, women are saying, wait, no, no, we're citizens and we need to be part of this. Remember Abigail Adams' letter to her husband in the 1776? And she said, remember the ladies and don't leave us out of your new form of government or we will foment a revolution. And of course, John Adams' patronizing, insulting response was, ha, 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 we know that you have all the power and we would never surrender our power because then you would be the boss of us. It's so patronizing. Anyway, so on your timeline, write 1776 and then write 1789 because that is the year that the Constitution was formally adopted and the 13 colonies become the United States. Now, 1789 is also a very important year in terms of this new developing Enlightenment ideology and the idea that citizens have rights. Uh, 1789 is celebrated every year on July 14th in France. It's called Bastille Day because 1789, July, I believe it's the 14th, uh, the French stormed the Bastille and took arms, and that is considered the formal start of the French Revolution. But what's really important is that a lot of people, when they think of the French Revolution, they think, oh, Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. They think of the guillotine and heads being cut off, but that's later. The first two and a half to three years 99, of the revolution 
are or what historians have called the moderate revolution, and that things become radicalized several years later. But in the moderate revolution, you have very similar language to the America's founding documents. And that's really important because it shows that the Enlightenment and its contribution to the new way people are thinking about government has really rooted itself in the West. And so we see coming out of the French Revolution in 1789 documents called the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. We see later on in the revolution, a woman named Olympia de Gouges will write the Declaration of the Rights of Woman, because just like in America, the men who wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen only intended to apply it to, you know, middle and upper middle class white men. But the language in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen will sound very familiar to any American who is familiar with the language of the, of the Declaration of Independence. It's the idea that a government is made up of the people's own sovereignty and that that government then has an obligation to rule in such a way that it improves the lives of its citizens, but most importantly, it cannot impede on these natural rights. Okay, so we have the end of the 18th century. We have America coming into its own as a country. We have the French Revolution start, and all of these events are connected with that revolutionary language. More importantly, women in America made it very clear that they understood their rights as citizens because of how involved they had been in the French Revolution. So you really have to think about the fact that from the very beginning of America's existence, there were women who were interpreting this new country as a country in which they were citizens and they had the same rights according to natural law. Now, one very important work that emerges in the last decade of the 18th century is a book by a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft. And the title of the book is A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And it was published in 1792. And it is considered by most women's history professors and women's history studies, I think, that this is the first modern feminist treatise. And very importantly, Wollstonecraft is making an argument about the status of women and why women are treated the way they are. And it's dense, but... It can be repetitive. It's written kind of in a different style, which is why very often when I would create my textbooks, I would go online and there's so much uh, that's not copyrighted that you can get a few pages. And I would get uh, selections from her writings because, as I said, reading through the whole work, which is incredible, does tend to be very dense. Later on in the 19th century, when we get to the writings of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and Lucy Stone and some of these other famous 19th century American feminists, their writing is much more straightforward and is certainly much easier for Americans to understand because so much of it comes from how we understand the underpinnings of our country. So in 1792, this incredible book is published. Now, 
Mary Wollstonecraft, at the time it was published, men referred to her as the hyena in petticoats and that she had been possessed by the Furies. Well, what is it that is in there that men find so threatening? Well, in a nutshell, it is the idea that the power that men have over women is not only a usurped power, but is contrary to natural law. And she will use all of the language of the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and she will say, look, the first principle is men and women are moral beings, moral and intellectual beings, and they are both entitled to the pursuit of happiness. God ordained that all of humankind be happy. And what is happiness? It is independence. It is respect. It is education. And it is the freedom to grow. And Wollstonecraft says, but women can't get any of those things because of man's tyranny. Men, most importantly, prevented women from receiving a proper education. And what did that do? Well, first of all, it keeps women ignorant and it keeps them dependent on men. And it leaves women in a position where there is very little respect for them because of the fact that they are often ignorant, they are often only familiar with what are considered proper uh, female topics of discussion and pursuits like piano playing and dancing and clothes. And in fact, Wollstonecraft criticized men and she said, you can't complain about women being flibberty gibbets and not knowing anything because you're the ones that created that. You're the ones who said a woman's proper and quote unquote natural place is to be a wife and mother. She's not suited to do anything else. So when you get married and you have a wife who can't have a conversation with you, who only cares about clothes and, and getting her daughter married and status and all that stuff, that is something that is the doing of men. And that by women having the same education as men, she will then be able to take her proper place in society and be respected and be able to pursue happiness. So this idea that women should just willingly and unconditionally submit to men and obey them without any question, how the hell does that lead to happiness? How does that allow a woman to pursue happiness if she is under the thumb of men? And any woman that tries to redefine the social situation is very dangerous. And that is, in fact, what really makes men in particular revile her and come up with nicknames like uh, the hyena and petticoats. And that is because men feared that if Wollstonecraft's ideas would, would be accepted and women would start being educated and would start demanding uh, that they be able to pursue happiness and start demanding that they be treated and respected as the intellectual and moral beings that they are, that men are going to become irrelevant. And in fact, Wollstonecraft will argue that a marriage is really just legalized prostitution. Now, that is an extreme position, 
but she was trying to make a point and she's trying to say that women are selling their services as wives the same way that prostitutes sell their services. So, you know, that certainly doesn't go over well, but it brings home the point that the only thing that men are valuing in women is their submission and obedience as wives. And she really believes that male authority is based on not just a usurpation, but she really questioned the validity of the intellectual arguments that men made about why women should be obedient and submission. She saw right through the arguments that they made, and she especially called into question the definition of quote-unquote natural, that men had decided what was natural for a woman. And that in itself is really a challenge to male authority because if you turn it on its head and say, no, what's natural is that women are moral and intellectual beings, and in order to take her place in society, she needs an education in which she will be able to fully embrace her intellectual capacities. Women were defined by men as gentle domestic brutes, as the slave of man, as the toy of man. They, they were spaniel-like in their affection. So she criticizes women too, because she believes that the whole idea of women as weak and frail and they don't know anything is a construct. And it's a construct made by men to keep women in their place. So Wollstonecraft's arguments are very powerful and we know that her book made it across the Atlantic. And a lot of arguments that you're going to see among early feminists really pick up on the arguments that she put forward in a vindication of the rights of woman. Now, interestingly, women in a revolutionary and post-revolutionary America had also been forwarding the importance of education. So we kind of have this paralleling some of Wollstonecraft's arguments. They were made in different ways and certainly not really the, the deep intellectual work that was Wollstonecraft's book. And I personally dislike the fact that she's not considered among the great thinkers of the Enlightenment, if you are familiar with the names Voltaire or uh, even Benjamin Franklin and, and James Madison uh, and Montesquieu and, and Rousseau, Wollstonecraft is putting forward an entire new way of understanding the nature of men and women, the role of men and women, and why women should not be continued to be kept in this inferior place. And so we see some of that already in the 1790s in America, in particular with a woman named Judith Sargent Murray, who had come up with some interesting ideas and published some in an essay in 1790. Now, Judith Murray is important. I mean, she hung out with George Washington. And apparently in American history, anytime you throw the name Washington slept here, Washington was here, it's this great thing. So this woman, you know, was part of the upper uh, crust. And she was arguing already that, look, women have a pu public life in this republic and women need to be 
educated in order to be better mothers and better citizens. That how can you raise good children of this new constitutional republic without being educated? But unfortunately, as later on with Wollstonecraft, there isn't a lot that is changing for women in America in terms of education. And what really starts to change it are two kind of important events. First of all, at the turn of the 19th century, you start to see industrialization really begin to pick up in the United States. And in addition to that, in the year 1803, and you know, it's only because I've done this so many times that I remember the year, Jefferson as president completed the Louisiana Purchase. France owned an entire section of what will become the United States, but Napoleon needed money for his wars in Europe and in particular to invade Russia. So he sold what became known as Louisiana Purchase. Well, it's so big that it essentially doubles the size of the United States. So we go from these 13 colonies to now double in size. And, you know, on if you pull up on Google any map that says Louisiana Purchase, you can, you'll see it. And so what happens between industrialization and the Louisiana Purchase is that more settlers begin moving into that territory and there's no schools, there's no infrastructure. So we really start to see the development, not just of industrialization, but the idea of schools. And in order to accommodate the number of settlers who are going to have children that need to go to school, it becomes accepted that women can be teachers. But you can't be a teacher and teach kids without knowing stuff yourself. So the, the thinking is, well, really teaching is kind of an outgrowth of what women do at home. So that's okay. We don't see her like turning into a lawyer. So we're, we're all right with that. In addition, we're okay with educating women, especially just because they're going to be teachers. Again, we're not educating them to be doctors or senators. We're just educating them to be teachers. And so it becomes acceptable for women to teach. And we start to see the development of public education throughout the 19th century. Now, at the beginning, some of the arguments about women's education were really, again, trying to keep the idea that women in education was not in any way upsetting the apple cart. But then things start to change. And one of the women who helps change it is a woman named Emma Hart Willard. Now, Emma Hart Willard was born in the end of the 18th century. She was the 16th out of 17 children. And believe it or not, she comes from this uh, fairly prosperous family. And what's important about Emma Hart Willard is that she had an intellectual curiosity and she had a first-rate intellectual mind. And by 12 years old, she started teaching herself geometry. And her father made her wooden blocks so that she could understand the shapes. So her father allowed her to express her intellect. And he didn't think that, oh, I don't want my daughter to be too intelligent. Because a lot of times the thinking is, if you're too smart, you're never going to get a husband. So the idea that this father 
allowed his daughter this intellectual freedom is very important. And we're going to see it with other American feminists too. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's father, who was a lawyer and then later a judge, she read a lot of law books. Sarah Grimke, who I'll talk about in the second half of this episode, also was self-taught. Emma Willard really becomes this beacon and she taught at some girls' academies. Uh, a lot of times these schools in the early 19th century, you know, you figure the 18 teens and 20s, they're really finishing schools. Wealthy families wanted to send their daughters to these academies where some very proper lady made sure that they could complete all of the proper female functions. Now, interestingly, she began teaching at the boys' grammar school that was in the downstairs of the girls' academy. At 20 years old, Emma Willard was running and teaching both parts of that school. She marries a widower who was quite a bit older than her. But again, he, Mr. Willard, it was actually a Dr. Willard, was thought, great, let's go ahead, do it. And so Emma Willard begins trying to develop a plan for what she calls the improvement of female education and to remove the taint of uh, intellectual equality with men. And so she begins the idea that you need money, an endowment to start a proper academy for women or a seminary. Uh, they use the word seminary at that time and don't confuse it with where the priests go to learn. Okay, so she turns to New York State and sends her plan to the governor in the late 18 teens. And she made it clear that what she wanted was to create a school to allow girls to receive what is, for lack of a better word, a rational education. And so after a series of other positions, she establishes the Troy Female Seminary in 1830. And this becomes the shining beacon of schools for young girls. And in fact, Elizabeth Cady Stanton will attend that school. And what's important is that these women that were going to the Troy Seminary were getting a rational education. They were getting math. They were getting science. They were getting history. And so all of those young women who went to that school then become graduates and are out in society and are going to begin demanding that education be expanded. So we see shortly thereafter in 1837, a woman named Mary Lyon founds Mount Holyoke, uh, which becomes the first women's college. Now, there's some technical things about it. What's important is that we start to see women beginning to create colleges, seminaries, academies, whatever you want to call it, in America for the purpose of giving women an education that was not just a finishing school. Now, in the South, uh, what was difficult is they had, quote unquote, colleges, but Mrs. Willard was really worried about it because if you use the word college, then it implied that you were the equal of men's colleges. Now, very importantly, one of the most important schools founded 
before America was even America, was the Boston Public Latin School for Boys, which was founded in 1635. Well, it takes almost 200 years, but in 1826, a sister school was established. And um, for two shining years, girls were able to go to the sister school of the Latin School for Boys. Why only two years? Well, because it was shut down. Why? Because the officials who ran the, the boys' school were afraid of what that kind of education would do for a woman's role in society. So we already are seeing something that's going to come up later in the 1870s and 80s and 90s when we have the kind of explosion of women's colleges and you see the establishment of what is known as the Seven Sisters School. And the same argument is going to be made. We can't let women have such an education because their brains are too small. They have other functions in society. What are they going to do with all that education? But again, it's too late. Now, in addition, Oberlin College in Ohio in 1833 allowed the admission of male and female students and white and black students. But very importantly, for the first several years, the curricula that was given to the young women was vastly different from that to the young men. It'll take some women college students, including a woman named Lucy Stone, who will go on to become an important, one of the most important American feminists, who are going to say, uh-uh, we don't want that. We want to have the same curricula as the guys. And the thinking, of course, was that, oh, well, you guys can't handle this. This is too hard. How do we expect you to learn trigonometry? How do we expect you to learn languages like Greek and Latin? Well, it took some time, but then the Oberlin College did eventually allow the curricula to be the same for both men and women. And so you really start to see by mid-century the clear establishment of education in America, and it's going to have a profound effect on American feminism. Because just like Mary Wollstonecraft said, if you allow a woman to have the same opportunity to pursue happiness as a, as a man in society, if you allow this being who was born with the same innate right to a pursuit of happiness, then the first way that woman has to achieve happiness is to respect herself and to understand that she has a role in society. And it's a role that requires more than just the simple finishing school subjects. Now, believe me, this is not an, oh, a f an easy fight. And most girls are not going to be able to go to Oberlin College or to the women's colleges later on. But it's important that these women who start this begin a process that influences American feminism and allows American feminists the intellectual tools to develop their arguments. And that is exactly what's going to happen with the fabulous Grimke sisters, Sarah and Angelina Grimke. I'm now going to turn to the fabulous Grimke sisters. I added the fabulous part. Let me preface it by saying and tying it to education in that 
The centrality of education to American feminism, we'll really see that when we start looking at the writings of the most famous 19th century feminists. And regardless of not being able to go to a university or a college, uh, someone like Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, did go to Emma Willard's Troy School, which was focused on an academic education for girls, not just sewing and dancing. And she also had access to her father's books and her father's encouragement to read. And so Elizabeth was reading all of these materials that helped her deepen her understanding of the law. Now, I want to focus on the Grimke sisters because they are often forgotten in discussions of the 19th century feminist movement. People focus on Susan B. Anthony, sometimes Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, later in the 20th century, it will, the focus will be on Alice Paul and others. So the Grimke sisters sometimes kind of get looked over. Now, recently, a book came out by Sue Monk Kidd, uh, a well-known author called The Invention of Wings. And it is a story of the Grimke sisters. And when I visited there several years ago, I had the good fortune to meet the artist who did the cover, a drawing of the Grimke sisters, which she signed for me and which I have. And it's, it's a great picture. You can, again, see it on the internet. Um, if you ever pull up the Grimke sisters on Google and they have a picture, you're probably going to be like, oh, wow, um, because they very much are women of their time in that, and they are also Quakers, so they're dressed very simply. But if you get a chance, look at Sarah Grimke, because what you see is this intensity in her face, and Sarah Grimke is one of my great heroes. The other is Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But she's one of my great heroes because when I read her works, I can feel her frustration. I can feel her anger at the inequity of women's position in America and how the arguments that have been put forward to relegate women to a private household life uh, she destroys them in her writings, and she tends to use religion and the Bible to do it. So she really gets uh, the responses where it hurts. The Grimke sisters were really, in many ways, the first of American feminists to challenge the gender construct and Victorian ideal. And by that, I mean this idea that women, because of their biology and physiology, are only suited to do household management, having kids, going to church, and no public life whatsoever. And this is really one of the first and most important fights. And that is, do women have the right to violate the rules of propriety and get involved in a political matter such as abolition in order to end it? Do they have that right? And um, the answer for a lot of the male, male society in the mid-1830s is no, they don't, and they will argue against it. When you're looking at the trajectory throughout the 19th century of American feminism, what you really see is that there are these different battles that are fought. Um, the battle for the vote will be much later. But this first battle, similarly with education, is can women enter the public sphere, come out in public, and make political statements about, and in this case, one of the most divisive issues in American history. 
Now, in their advocacy, they start out getting involved in the abolition movement, but in their advocacy for abolition, they will run headlong into the language of, oh, this woman is stepping out of her place. This is not the sphere where women belong. And so what will happen is you will see the growth of feminist thinking coming out of uh, the involvement by women in the abolition movement. And so women, particularly the Grimke sisters, will speak about the importance of advocacy by women, and they're going to couch their arguments about moral duty within religious language. So who are these fabulous sisters? Well, first of all, and this is a very important point, these two women are Southerners. They're from Charleston, and their father was one of the great planter I don't hesitate to use the word aristocrat, but he was. He was one of the most wealthy of the planter families in South Carolina. The sisters grew up on a plantation and in their townhouse in, in downtown Charleston. And it's going to make them very unique in the abolition movement because they are going to be able to speak firsthand of the experience of having enslaved persons. Now, Sarah was 12 years older, so I'm going to start by talking about her background a little and kind of give you how this all evolved. Sarah was born in Charleston, and again, here she is growing up on a plantation. She's the eighth out of 14 kids, but she saw the horrific results of enslaving people firsthand. And in her own story, she once said, I don't know if this is true, but she said it, that she had seen a slave, uh, an enslaved person whipped and she ran away from home and she wanted to get in a, on a steamship and leave South Carolina. What we know for sure she did is that Sarah read the Bible to the enslaved persons. So Sarah really believed that the enslaved persons should be able to be taught to read so that they could read the Bible for themselves. And that is a central tenet of, that came out of the Reformation, this idea that the Bible is something that should be accessible to everyone. Now, she really got into a huge heap of trouble. Judge Grimke had decided that each of his 14 children would have their own personal, he referred to them as companions around their own age. They were not companions, they were enslaved persons. Sarah secretly taught her enslaved person to read and write. And this went on for quite a while before it was discovered. And when it was her father lost it and was screaming and hollering about how this is a violation of South Carolina law. I mean, after all, he's a judge and the trouble she could get into. We, it, there's mixed reports on whether he took Sarah Grimke's enslaved person and sold her or assigned her to some other part of their very vast uh, land holdings, we do know that she was no longer going to be the companion, and I use that in quotation marks, to Sarah. And Sarah was devastated. She knew it was against the law, but it was so important to her that reading and writing be offered to the enslaved persons, mostly for purposes of the Bible. But 
you know, Sarah also was a very intellectually gifted and curious young woman. And <clears throat> similar to what Elizabeth Cady Stanton will do in her own girlhood, Sarah uh, had access to a ton of books. Um, she had all these, lots of brothers who were all headed for college, and she had her father, the judge. So she began reading and studying the various law books uh, that her brother was using to prepare himself for law school. And when it was time for him to leave first for college, she thought she was going to go with him. She thought, okay, I've read all the same stuff. I want to be a lawyer too. And that was her great dream because she saw being a lawyer as a way to really remedy or contribute to society and most importantly to the abolition movement. When she pitched a fit that she wasn't going to be going to a university or law school, her parents took away all the books that she had originally had access to uh, as, as, as though somehow that was going to do something or put the genie back in the bottle. Now, the way Sarah Grimke comes to become an, involved in abolition and join uh, abolitionist groups in the North is that she went North to Philadelphia with her dad. The dad was sick. Sarah went with him to help him. He eventually passes away there. And then she'll invite Angelina, her much younger sister, to come North. Now, when Sarah Grimke was helping her father during the months he was um, in decline, she attended Quaker meetings. Now, Quakers are unique among the different religions that were in America at this time in that, first of all, they were called friends, they had meeting houses, and there wasn't one person, a male, pontificating from a pulpit. Meetings were open to everyone to speak, and so women were allowed to speak at these meetings. And Quakers, because of their religious beliefs, were among the most noticeable abolitionist groups. So Sarah invites Angelina up there. They, they get involved in abolitionist groups, and one abolitionist encouraged Angelina to write something called An Appeal to the Christian Women of the South. And in that treatise, she urges the women of the South to step up and recognize the damage that having enslaved persons and the slave system was doing to the American family. She was trying to appeal to the matters that most Southern women of middle and upper middle classes could relate to. What then started happening is that because they were unique in that they had witnessed enslavement firsthand, uh, some of the abolitionist groups began inviting them to speak in small parlor gatherings. And at first it was all women. Now, it turned out that Angelina was incredibly eloquent. It's going gonna, it's gonna to sort of uh, evolve that Angelina will be the public speaker until she, you know, for several years, but Sarah will be the gifted writer. And you can really see all of her reading of law books and possibly philosophy and logic in her writings because her arguments against women being involved in political life are so well constructed. But 
word started getting out about these two sisters from the South who were talking about abolition and explaining how the slave system really worked. But what happens? Well, they got so popular, they started to have meetings in churches so that more people could attend. You're moving out of somebody's parlor into a church. And then from there into bigger venues because so many people wanted to come and hear them speak, and especially Angelina. So as a response, we have a very important letter, I'll call it, that was written to the women for their because of their public speaking. It's referred to as the Pastoral Letter from the Council of Congregationalist Ministers of Massachusetts. Now, Congregationalism, that's the Puritans, and they're the largest denomination in Massachusetts and in a good part of New England. But it also encompassed the position of a patriarchal society. So just the fact that it's comes from this group of ministers, do not discount it. The letter is also published uh, later. And so I'm just going to uh, read a little bit of the letter to give you a flavor of how a patriarchal society is going to attempt to silence these women and put them back into the household and out of, in this case, uh, abolition movements were politics. Okay, so they start out by saying, we invite your attention to the dangers which at present seem to threaten the female character with widespread and permanent injury. The appropriate duties and influence of women are clearly stated in the New Testament. Those duties and that influence are unobtrusive and private, but the sources of mighty power. When the mild, dependent, softening influence upon the sternness of man's opinions is fully exercised, society feels the effect in it, of it in a thousand forms. The power of woman is her dependence, flowing from the consciousness of that weakness which God has given her for her protection. We appreciate the unostentatious prayers of woman in advancing the cause of religion at home and abroad, in Sabbath schools, in leading religious inquiries to the pastors for instructions, and in all such associated efforts as become the modesty of her sex. Okay, here comes the kicker. But when she assumes the place and tone of man as a public reformer, she yields the power which God has given her for her protection, and her character becomes unnatural. If the vine whose strength and beauty is to lean on the trellis work and half conceal its cluster thinks to assume the independence and the overshadowing nature of the elm, it will not only cease to bear fruit, but fall in shame and dishonor into the dust. Wow. Okay. You know, this is, this is really profoundly effective. And we know that the two sisters were in many respects, enraged, because what's driving them is their sense of moral duty and their conscience, that knowing that the United States was engaged in this heinous, evil system was so egregious, an affront to God and 
humans and to they had to do something. So it's really their sense of, okay, we have a right to be involved in this because this is such an important matter. And um, in one of the writings, they will use the Sermon on the Mount and talk about how God doesn't want you to hide your light, that you have a duty to illuminate these evils of society and do something about them. Now, the sisters are going to fight back, and Sarah is going to write a response to the pastoral letter. But notice what's happening here. Because of their involvement in the abolition movement, because they were going out and speaking in public and publishing different writings, male society said, no, this is not where you belong, and we don't want you here. But again, the over the driving force of their belief that they had a moral obligation to end the slave system is what drove them. And Sarah is going to use the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament to argue against every position that male authority is going to take about how God has decided women have to behave at home. So Sarah publishes a response to the pastoral letter, uh, which is great. And what's so fascinating is that she uh, starts out her response by talking about the witchcraft trials of the 17th century and Cotton Mather, who was this distinguished man who was heavily involved. And basically what she's saying is that there's going to come a day when people are going to read the pastoral letter that these guys wrote and people reading it are going to treat it the same as the superstition of witchcraft that people read about uh, of the 17th century. So it's like, oh my gosh, who could possibly believe in, you know, all of this uh, craziness about witches? I mean, the judges on trial. And then, you know, she talks about how they not only condemned a 19 person, but they also put a dog to death for witchcraft. And so uh, 150 years later, or however long it's been, Sarah's saying, forget it. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous what you're saying to us. And so she also starts out by arguing that, gee, thanks so much for letting us uh, know that we're going to have a permanent injury caused to us. But she says, look, men have usurped authority. God created men and women and rejoiced in the creation. And her belief is that if you look at what is in the New Testament, her argument is that the creator has assigned women a place similar to man because he created her to move in society and address moral failings and, and legal failings. She also argues that you can't just trust that this is what, you know, the ministers say this is what the Bible says. And she's like, no, it isn't. If you read it yourself, uh, if you look at it yourself, you're going to see that, wow, these guys have done a lot of interpreting and not a lot of actual consideration of what the words say. She also criticized the translations into English of the New Testament varied widely because, you know, the original is in Greek 
And so her argument is that, well, what are you possibly translating? Then she also goes on to talk about the Sermon of the Mount and again, how important it is for women to be involved. Her influence is the source of mighty power. And she, Sarah Grimke is going to criticize that argument. And this is what men are going to say over and over again. We saw it with John Adams when he responded to Abigail Adams' letter about remembering the ladies in the new code and the new government. She is saying that John said, oh, we all know who really runs the house. And this is what these men are arguing. Women are so powerful at home. They have so much influence. That is where they can make their most important mark. But, you know, Sarah is going to make the argument that, look, man and woman are supposed to be involved in society. And it is important that a woman contribute. That's what God wants her to do. She is a creation of the Almighty, and when he created men and women, it was in a situation where men and women both have an obligation to the world. She, she talks about um, a woman who wrote to her and said, I pray and pray and pray for the end of the slave system, and no matter how hard I prayed, nothing happened, and I came to the conclusion that I needed to do something. And that woman that wrote to her became part of the abolitionist movement. So it's important to understand that Sarah is not going to accept this idea that somehow women are unnatural and are acting contrary to God's plan by involving themselves in this horrific stain in America. Note too the use of the word unnatural, that whole metaphor that just as in nature, the vine and the trellis have a specific job and place, so do women. And if the vine tries to take over and become the boss, the vine is going to die. And so basically they're saying to, to women, yeah, you know, you're not going to be a woman anymore if you get involved in political matters. So now the issue is what we call joint. In other words, we have the abolitionist movement in full swing in the 1830s and feminism beginning to emerge in the speeches and writings of these sisters, specifically targeting the idea that women only belong in the private sphere. Women, as far as they're concerned, are th this whole argument about what woman's place is becomes central to their position. And, and so out of their involvement in abolition, they begin to develop, and especially Sarah, a feminist thinking and a feminist ideology. And that is really important because we're really seeing the beginnings of purely feminist arguments. And those arguments are going to then be picked up in another 10 years when we have the first women's rights convention. But this is coming out of these women becoming involved in the abolitionist movement because of their drive and their belief in the importance of them doing something about it. Now, in addition, what started to happen is, is 
Angelina and Sarah began talking and writing more and more about women and their right to be involved, etc., some of the abolitionist men were not too thrilled with this, and they wanted them to stop. And some of the most prominent abolitionists, you know, went to the sisters and said, please stop talking about women's rights, because by getting into that hornet's nest, it's going to hurt the abolitionist cause. But again, the problem is, is that you can't undo what's been done, and you can't undo that sense of duty that humans have about doing something when you see a horrific injustice. And so Angelina was clear that she told the abolitionists that we're going to keep going. And here's what she said. We cannot push abolitionism forward with all our might until we take up the stumbling block out of the road. You may depend on it. Though to meet this question may appear to be turning out of the road, it is not. We must meet it and meet it now. Why, my dear brothers, can you not see the deep-laid scheme of the clergy against us as lecturers? If we surrender the right to speak in public this year, we must surrender the right to petition next year and the right to write the year after and so on. What then can woman do for the slave when she herself is under the feet of man and shamed into silence? Wow. Sarah will also say, and this is a very famous quote, and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to quote this all the time. Sarah would say, all I ask of my brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks and permit us to stand upright on the ground which God has designed us to occupy. So even these abolitionists who had supported their speaking on abolition now are saying, you know, you're going to get all of this snared up in this whole women's rights thing. But Angelina is saying, no, if you, if, if we give in on this, then they're going to start clipping away at everything else that we have as citizens the right to do. One of them is to write letters and treatises and have them published. And the other one is the right to petition which is part of the First Amendment. Now, this became a big a constitutional question and was discussed on the floor of the House of Representatives. You can see how American feminism is going to really root itself in a lot of what's in the Constitution. Now, Angelina was the first woman to ever speak to a committee of a state legislature in public. And it was because an anti-slavery petition had been filed and abolitionists asked her to speak to the members of this committee. Well, there were so many people crowded into the room to listen to her that the committee members tried to keep her from speaking on the second day. And the witnesses to the event like were, you know, this woman is running circles around this guy. But she's coming into this legislative committee and coming on the heels of petitions, anti-slavery petitions that were filed. Now, in addition, petitions had been flooding in to the U.S. House of Representatives. And when John Quincy Adams, who is a representative, he had been president, but um, in 1837 and 38, he was a representative for Massachusetts from Plymouth, 
he got involved because he defended the rights of his constituents to a, a petition Congress. The congressman had in the House had tried to and, and succeeded in passing something called the Pickney Gag Rule, which forbade the presentation of petitions on slavery. And John Quincy Adams rose up and said, no, you know, that's a right my constituents have. But then the problem is, is that the, the Southern representatives and the ones who had come up with the gag rule are saying, but wait a minute. Yeah, your constituents have the right to petition, but a big proportion of all these anti-slavery petitions that are flooding into uh, state legislatures in the U.S. House are from female anti-slavery societies. Well, that is not acceptable. In other words, women aren't supposed to be petitioning and an all-female anti-slavery society petitioning, there's, go, there's a, a debate on the floor of do they have that right? And one of the congressmen who said he doesn't believe they have that right he said this on the floor of House of the House of Representatives. He always felt regret when petitions thus signed by women were presented to the House related to political matters. He thought that the females could have a sufficient field for the exercise of their influence in their discharge of their duties to their fathers, their husbands, or their children, cheering the domestic circle and shedding over it the mild radi radiance of the social virtues instead of rushing into the fierce struggles of political life. He feels sorry for women who are departing their proper sphere in which there's plenty, abundant room for the practice of benevolence and philanthropy, but you discredit yourself when you move out of that sphere. And so he's saying, again, just like the pastoral letter, God, nature, our society have made it clear that the reality is, is that women are so powerful. And remember the pastoral letter, they said your power comes from your dependence and recognizing that dependence frees you and you understand that your role is only in the household. Well, yeah, no. And remember, John Quincy Adams is Abigail Adams' son. And when he heard this criticism by this congressman about women rushing headlong into the struggles of political life and how that, it kind of twists you. It turns you into, and again, I'll use this word, monstrous. It makes you something unnatural. And that's a real fear for women. I mean, the average woman is not necessarily going to feel like this is her involvement in public life is okay. So here's what John Quincy Adams said when he made several speeches on women's role during the Revolutionary War and how it was his opinion that American women, starting with the Revolutionary War, were moving into a broader sphere. Here's what he says, and remember who his mommy was. Why does it follow that women are fitted for nothing but the cares of domestic life? for bearing children and cooking the food of a family, devoting all their time to the domestic circle, to promoting the immediate personal comfort of their husbands, brothers, and sons. The mere departure of women from the duties of the domestic circle, far from being a reproach to her, 
is a virtue of the highest order when it is done from purity of motive by appropriate means and the purpose good. Well, when uh, the congressman said women had no right to petition because they lacked the right to vote, so some of the argument from the other side, and this is especially the Southern congressmen who you know want to keep things as they are and don't want the abolition movement to get bigger and stronger, that congressman who had talked about women needing to, you know, how terrible it was to move into the public and blah, blah, blah. He said women have no right to petition because they didn't have the right to vote. So basically he wants to deny you your First Amendment right which is to petition the government by saying, well, you, that right doesn't apply to you because you don't have the right to vote. And you know what old John Quincy Adams said? He said, is it so clear that they have no such right as this last? Whoo! So, so basically John Quincy Adams is saying, where does it say women can't vote? And uh, where of, what are, what are we going to do? I mean, it's like, this is perfect. You've got this, Former president, now a representative, son of a former president, and son of Abigail Adams, making it clear that women don't just belong in the household. And yes, they have the right to petition because it's in the Constitution. And the idea that because they don't have the right to vote means they their First Amendment right is stripped of them too. He's saying, I don't think that's clear. So... This is where things are at in the in the mid 1830s until you know the end of the decade, and from that point on, more and more women become involved in the abolition movement. Angelina Grimke actually marries Theodore Weld, a leading abolitionist. Uh, she continued some of her public speaking for a few years. But it was really Sarah who was going to take off and will be focused on the issue of women's rights. Once she moves away from the argument of we have the right to be involved in politics when we're trying to end this, this evil in our society, she then moves on to talk about the ways in which women being relegated to the private sphere is contrary to God and contrary to logic. And so she's going to pick up on some of the things that Mary Wollstonecraft says. And, and, and a lot of the arguments that she makes are going to be arguments that we're going to see later on in American feminism and, and even into the 20th century. So Sarah focuses on the issue of women's rights. And I just want to tell you a few of the writings. Sarah was prolific through her lifetime, but the late 1830s, she wrote several pieces one of which was called The Legal Disabilities of Women. Another one was called On the Condition of Women in the United States. And another one on Equality of the Sexes. So she goes right after the systemic sexism that exists. She opens up her writing, The Legal Disabilities of Women. And remember, she read all those law books. She thought she was going to get a chance to be a lawyer, but she is in effect arguing as a lawyer because her arguments are not, are not just rooted in religion. When she talks about the laws, the courts, and how they reinforce uh, what society uh, believes to be a woman's proper place, she is arguing as someone who is deeply knowledgeable of legal traditions and, and the flaws in the legal arguments. 
So she writes, Sarah Grimke, there are few things which present obstacles to the improvement and elevation of woman to her appropriate sphere of usefulness and duty than the laws which have been enacted to destroy her independence and crush her individualities. Laws which, although they are framed for her government, she has no voice in establishing and which rob her of some of her essential rights. So listen to that. Um, with the single exception of presenting a petition to the legislative body, she is a cipher in the nation, or if not actually so in representative governments, she is only counted like the slaves of the South to swell the numbers of lawmakers who form decrees for her government with little reference to her benefit, except so far as her good may promote their own. Okay. Um, here she's saying women don't have a political existence. Women have laws passed against them that they have no voice in. Hello, vote. So you can see the seeds of a lot of, of arguments here where she's saying that you guys have created laws that are based on a determination of our nature that is flawed and erroneous. And the laws that you've enacted are crushing us. I always think of Mary Wollstonecraft when I think of that, because there's such a thread among all these women, the modern feminists, about how laws especially are used as a way to maintain a status quo where women have no rule outside the household. She complains about the laws about wife beating, that the law, she argues, how is it that a law is reasonable that entrusts a man to restrain himself when he's engaged in, engaged in domestic chastisement? The courts of law will still permit a husband to restrain a wife of her liberty in case of any gross misbehavior. And this goes back to the sadness of madness. A husband can commit you. If you start running around and, uh, you know, involving yourself in politics... Who knows what your husband might do? She also argues against the idea that any labor a woman does where she makes money is her husband's and how unfair that is. And that if a husband has the right to her money, he can do whatever he wants with it. And what if it's a bad guy? What if the husband is a worthless, idle man and a bad dude who basically doesn't allow the wife to spend the money on the household. Well, she doesn't have any legal recourse. And she talks about taxation without representation. She said, be it remembered, was the cause of our re revolutionary war, a grievance so heavy that it was thought necessary to purchase exemption from it at an Im immense expense of blood and treasure. Wow. And yet the daughters of New England, as well as all of the other states of this free republic, are suffering a similar injustice. Wow. Okay. And so she faults men for allowing these kinds of injustices to be leveled on women without knowing that it's hypocritical. She will go on to uh, also talk about things that modern feminists are used to. In uh, one of her pieces called On the Condition of Women in the United States, she talks very similarly to Mary Wollstonecraft. And 
It's right out of there. She talks about how when she was younger, they dressed her up. They wanted her to be like the perfect little flibberty woman and not to be too intellectual because that turns off men. And she says that didn't sit with me. She couldn't abide by that kind of situation. And Sarah Grimke will never uh, get married in her lifetime. So she will focus her entire life on writing about the status of women. Now, one thing that she talks about that is right out of modern feminism and is a subject that is continually talked about today is the, no, the idea of equal pay. And she uses the idea of teachers. And she says, why is it that a man who is a teacher can command a higher price than a woman, even if he's teaching the same thing, even if he doesn't have as much experience as her, then how is that possible? Um, she also talks about tailors and how tailors make more money. She also then talks about something that is no longer in fashion, but it's called comparable worth. Because so many professions can be, certain professions become dominated by women, teaching, nursing, especially uh, in the 19th century. And what her argument is, is, wait a minute, are you telling me that women who engage in those practices should be paid less simply because they're women? And what about when women are doing something similar to a man? And she gives the example of a woman who goes out to wash works as hard in proportion as a wood sawer or a coal heaver, but she is not generally able to make more than half as much by a day's work because she's getting less money. And, you know, washing clothes in 1838 was a very arduous process. So she brings up this idea that just because certain jobs, certain areas are dominated by women doesn't mean that you can automatically pay less, especially when men who are doing something similar are getting paid more. So she will also talk, she talks about many, many other things. Uh, she talks about the dress of women. Um, and again, this emphasis on clothes. And she's just really the most incredible early feminist. And one of the most important things she says that became popular, Hillary Clinton says, said it, and she said it in that famous year of the woman in the 90s. Hillary Clinton says women's rights are human rights. And plenty of different groups of women make that same argument. And she says in one of her writings, I know of no such rights that are women's rights or men's rights. I only recognize human rights. And here is this incredible woman saying something that we are saying today and we're still fighting about, that it's a human right and you can't make certain rights only applicable to men and deny women other rights purely on the basis of the fact that they're women. And you have these constructs that continually inform the position that women only belong in the private sphere. So the fight about public activity, the Grimke sisters launch it and it will become uh, the way the world works in the 19th century. And in fact, if any of you are watching the HBO show, The Gilded Age, one of my favorite periods in American history, because you start to see the beginning of the progressive movement, 
one of the things they show is all these different women involved in charities. So that the rich women in New York go to all these charitable events. Clara Barton starts the Red Cross. So the, all the things the women in the 1870s and 1880s are going to be doing in terms of public activity for good causes, there's not going to be any discussion anymore that they have a right to do it. Now, there is going to be discussion that there are certain things that it's okay for women to be involved with. But the idea of women speaking in public, giving lectures, traveling around, meeting with different groups, that is a, a fight the Grimke sisters launch and Sarah Grimke certainly helps everybody win. So I urge you, if you have a few moments, look up some of Sarah Grimke. Everything is on the internet and is free. And again, it, it, her her writing can some is very easy to read because it's so straightforward. You don't need to be a lawyer. You don't need to be a theologian. You don't even need to be conversant in the Bible because she makes clear, oh, okay, this is what it says. This is what you guys say it says. So take a minute, think about Sarah Grimke. Take a look at her picture so you can see her intensity. She went on um, and her and Angelina would live most of their lives together. And very interestingly, later on, their brother had two interracial children that the Grimke sisters took under their wing and paid for them to go to school and help them get into colleges. And they did everything they could to help in the burden of these young men being considered black and not having the opportunities that they that other men who are white had and so she Sarah and Angelina really championed these two young men their nephews and I just think it speaks a lot when you read their writings and you read how they feel about abolition and then women's rights you can see all the seeds of the civil rights movement and most especially the feminist movement so take a look at that and join me next time when I am going to discuss the first women's rights convention in 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention. And unlike a lot of textbooks, I'm not just going to talk about, oh, the women got together and they wrote this declaration and blah, blah, blah. No, the textbooks never talk about the reaction in the newspapers and, and, and among, you know, clergy and businessmen and everyone about how they felt about women and their demands. So join me next time for episode eight, and thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Yali Christina Company.